KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Some of the most brilliant scientific minds in the country are working like mad to unravel the mysteries of COVID-19. And the scientists at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Knoxville, Tennessee, have just had a eureka moment. They analyzed gene expression data from cells in bronchial fluids from COVID-19 patients. What they discovered would explain the varied symptoms of COVID-19 and why ventilators don't help many of the sickest patients. And it may send the search for treatments in a whole new direction. Dr. Dan Jacobson is the chief scientist for computational systems biology at Oak Ridge. Dr. Jacobson, thank you for joining us. Sure, happy to. Can you tell us what you were looking for and how you did that? We're trying to understand the pathogenesis of COVID-19, how it affects people, how the body's responding to it that leads to some of these really bad outcomes that we're probably all too painfully familiar with. And so we were able to put together a number of different data sets that allowed us to understand the shifts in gene expression in, in, in key pathways, key areas in COVID-19 patients to really understand a lot of the symptoms that, that we're seeing. We had a particular focus in this work on the what's called the renin-angiotensin system, or RAS pathways, as well as the bradykinin pathways. We were initially looking at these pathways because we know that coronaviruses in general often use different members of this pathway as their way to get into the cell. So SARS-CoV-2 uses the ACE2 protein to latch onto and then through a complex process is internalized into the cell to do its dirty work. And so we were really staring at this ex- gene expression data, trying to understand what's going on on the inside of a people's lungs, bron- bronchoalveolar lavage. It's a procedure where you put a bronchoscope down into the forest reaches of, of the lung that you can get with a bronchoscope and actually inject sterile saline fluid and then suck it back out. And you do that several times, as many as 15 times, to get really a washing of the internal surface of the lung. So that's going to collect all the cells that are in that environment. So that's really right at the edge of gas exchange. That's, that's the surface of the lung that's exposed to air from the outside world. So we're really interested in what's going on there in COVID-19. We saw this dramatic shift in key, key parts of the renin-angiotensin system, um, which is normally responsible for regulating your blood pressure, among other things. The way it does that is this, this, this sort of access between a, a gene called ACE2 and a gene called ACE. And they're in this sort of dynamic tension of how the pathway functions to either raise your blood pressure or lower your blood pressure. In, in normal circumstances, you want someone to be normotensive. Um, and so they're, they're in careful balance to keep your, your blood pressure regulated. What we saw in sort of a eureka moment one Sunday afternoon when we were staring at this data in, in a different way was that different parts of this pathway, and specifically ACE and ACE2, are, are pushed in opposite directions in COVID-19 patients. Um, ACE2 is highly upregulated, and, and ACE is significantly downregulated. And as soon as I saw that, I said, this is something has to be going on here. When you take that careful balance and really put it out of whack, this is going to have some profound effects. And that led us on this chase to understand what's going on in COVID-19 patients in this, these RAS pathways, as well as a, a related pathway 
called the Catechrine system, um, which, which results in bradykinin. And bradykinin is a very important little peptide as well, and it also is heavily involved in regulating blood pressure, but also importantly, the permeability of your blood vessels. With excess bradykinin, you actually vasodilate your blood pressure, your, your blood vessels get larger, and you open up gaps between the cells and the internal lining of the blood vessels or capillaries. And that actually allows fluid to leak out of your blood vessels into the surrounding tissue. And that's a normal part of blood pressure regulation. That's a normal part of, of, of an inflammatory response because as you let fluid leak out, you're, you get swelling in that local tissue. That, that also allows immune cells that are normally kept in the bloodstream to infiltrate into that surrounding tissue and you start to get um, an inflammatory response. So we've all had an infection or, or even a, a bug bite where you get an inflammatory response of, of things get red and swollen and inflamed. Um, well, this is involved in those sorts of processes. In COVID-19, this gets really, really out of control. There are normally a set of genes carefully regulating the production of bradykinin. There are negative um, regulators at the top of the pathway. Um, um, ACE itself is, is involved in normally degrading bradykinin. Um, and then the, the receptors for bradykinin normally desensitize pretty quickly. When they see too much signal, too much bradykinin, they actually come shut down. The pernicious thing that we see happening in COVID-19 patients is all those things that keep these checks and balances in place are are effectively gone or dysregulated. So the serping one, the gene that encodes for the primary negative regulator at the top of the pathway is, is severely downregulated. ACE itself is severely downregulated, so it's not removing the bradykinin from the system like it normally would. And so basically um, you're flooded with that? You're, you're, your body's just flooded with a bradykinin? You're flooded with the bradykinin. There are several genes in the pathway that are upregulated for the synthesis of it. So you take off the brakes at the top of the pathway. You ramp up the synthesis. Normally, the receptors themselves are actually upregulated, so there are more receptors around. And normally, the receptors with too much signal would shut down. But here's the, the connection to one of the connections to the RAS pathway. When we tip the balance between ACE and ACE2, that leads to a different flow in the RAS pathway that leads to a receptor called AGTR2. And it then resensitizes the bradykinin receptors. So that's the sort of last line of defense of, of down-regulating the bradykinin receptors. When they see too much bradykinin, you now take away because the RAS pathway is now pumping a little peptide called angiotensin 1-9 that has the effect of continually resensitizing the bradykinin receptors. So now um, we have what we're calling a bradykinin storm. You're ramping up the production bradykinin and you've taken off all the checks and balances in the system. So it's just out of control. And that leads to now this, this hyperpermeability in blood vessels. So water is flowing, plasma is flowing into the tissue around blood vessels. Immune cells are infiltrating and you're way out of control. The interesting connection on the RAS side is a key regulator. The very top of the RAS pathway is the vitamin D receptor. And that controls, that's a negative regulator of renin, which is one of the first important steps in, in the RAS pathways. And we see the vitamin D receptors down-regulated. And several 
genes that catabolize the important um, analogs of vitamin D that actually bind to the vitamin D receptor are upregulated dramatically. So they're chewing up all the vitamin D and its products inside. And so, again, that, that takes off to break to the top of the renin-angiotensin system, and you have more and more signal and peptides flowing through that system, which just exacerbates the entire process. So would this explain this kind of Brady Kynan storm, explain the, the wide range of symptoms we've been seeing in COVID patients? That's our model. When, when we look at what happens with Brady Kynan in other diseases that may be hereditary, and, and we look at the, the effects of that in different parts of the body, there, there's an amazing concordance with exactly the symptoms we're seeing in, in COVID-19. So the sort of water flowing into the lungs. Um, and there, there's another aspect of this that we, um, we found is that hyaluronic acid is a polymer that's found all throughout biology. Bacteria produce it. Snails produce it. Snail slime, if you felt you know, the sliminess of, of, of the foot of a snail, that's actually hyaluronic acid. It's a polymer that's naturally produced in many organisms, including us, that can... Um, absorb more than a thousand times its own weight in water. It becomes a hydrogel. And what you say about um, that is, I mean, that really jumped out at me. You you described what happens to the lungs as breathing through jello, trying to breathe through jello. Right. So we, we found that the genes responsible for synthesizing hyaluronic acid were highly upregulated, and the genes that encode proteins that normally degrade it were downregulated. So again, we're, we have something going out of control pumping out lots of hyaluronic acid and not being able to degrade it. Now, imagine you're creating a lot of that hyaluronic acid, and now all this liquid is also leaking into the same area from the permeability of the blood vessels. So you have this water hitting that hyaluronic acid, and yeah, you get this hydrogel, like jello, um, forming on the, the, the linings of your alveoli, and that's you can imagine trying to, to breathe through jello. It doesn't work really well. It's preventing the gas exchange that normally happens on the inside of the lung. And that explains why many patients, when they're in intensive care and we put them on ventilators, um, often that's not enough. And, and part of that is you, it doesn't matter how much oxygen you pump into the lungs if they're, if they're blocked by this hydrogel, by this jello-like substance. If we look at this system-wide, what this out-of-control cycle would do, another function of one of the Brady kind receptors is actually um, involved in pain. So if you overactivate one of the other Brady kind receptors, you get a, a large pain response. That's already known to be involved in really sore muscles and, and sore joints. So the myalgia, the, the, the pain in muscles and joints in COVID-19 fits perfectly with this Brady kind of storm model. This, you know, angioedema, this outflowing of water and, and and hyaluronic acid in the lungs that we see fits perfectly. A lot of the neurological symptoms in COVID-19, there have been several studies. In fact, um, one, another one just came out recently showing how fluid is, is leaking in the brain and causing pressure and disruption in neurological function. Perfectly fits with the Brady kind of storm model. So what we think is going on is at points of infection around the body, this, this virus can infect multiple tissues. And as it bounces around the body, and some of that is probably stochastic of where it ends up hitting in some people, you get this broad range of symptoms of how, probably based on how many different 
places in your body, how many different organ systems um, the virus has been successful colonizing. You get these local dysregulations of, of RAS and bradykinin. And that keeps matching up with the symptoms that we see as those as those organ systems are affected with bradykinin. We would predict, and they match up really well, the sort of resulting symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives us an interesting model that, that then we can we can test and attack. And the good news is there are a number of different existing pharmaceuticals that can help attack or downregulate different parts of of this model. And there have been a, a few small clinical studies with really encouraging results of, of the drugs that we had predicted to have an effect. They're showing really encouraging results in small studies, and so we need to get them into proper, large, well-designed clinical trials. But incabinant, which is a bradykinin receptor um, blocker antagonist, is showing some encouraging results. It's a great study out of Spain on a vitamin D analog that's also showing really great results. And we're we're busily pushing to set up large scale clinical trials to really to really prove this out and in a way that will help a lot of people. So does this storm explain why some people we're hearing now as we get, you know, we're months now into the pandemic, some people who have recovered from COVID are still having these symptoms, particularly cognitive symptoms that they're fighting months out. Would that explain this? It's a very good question that we are in fact looking into. We are are interacting with and, and working with some groups of, of what are now being called long haulers. And we, we think it's, it could well be. We have, a, we have a couple different hypotheses of what could be explaining that. One is that exactly this mechanism, once it's dysregulated, simply continues. It's out of control. And once you're down that path, until you reset these molecular mechanisms, you're still going to be struggling with these, with these symptoms. In some people, you may still have live virus long after it's been cleared out of the nasal passages. It, it may it may actually still be in other tissues. As a reservoir, we, we think the intestines are actually probably a large reservoir. Mm-hmm. And there is data showing that um, we can detect it in feces long after we, we can no longer detect it in, in, the, in the nasal passages. So we're, we're working with some of these long-haul groups to, to start to and look at data and try to build future future research that would actually address these questions. Because, yeah, I think if we end up with a large population of people who have effectively COVID-19 disabilities, we, we really need to be paying attention to that in a big way. Does this shed any light on why some people are asymptomatic or have mild cases and some people become very sick very quickly? I think there's a study that came out in the past week or two um, that looked, um, it's a radiological study, it's a chest x-rays of, of, of people who are asymptomatic. And an alarmingly high percentage of them, um, you could actually see the ground glass opacities um, in their lungs. So, um, and that's hyaluronic acid. They may be asymptomatic and they may not be aware of it, but damage is being done and sometimes there could be a tipping point phenomenon where you're not perceiving that you're slowly becoming hypoxic. And people who tip over that threshold all of a sudden go downhill very quickly. Mm-hmm. So we're worried that an asymptomatic people is sort of lurking. And once it tips over, it can get serious in a hurry. Also, some of the long haulers are people who were asymptomatic, but then have developed long-term symptoms. Um, so we think there's there's a considerable concern about a lot of damage being done and folks that are otherwise not 
not noticing it so much. Um, but actually, the virus is unfortunately um, doing damage that could have long-term long-term consequences. As to severity, um, there's a certainly a genetic component of this, which is also um, something we're looking at and studying along with others, is to try to understand what are genetic predispositions and environmental predispositions that affect this. So as systems biologists, we're really trying to take this at all angles, from genetics to gene expression to how all that is conditional on environment, to understand the overall picture and exactly try to understand, yes, why why some people seem to be more susceptible um, to severe disease, what are all the other comorbidities that can lead to that. We're doing a lot of work with clinical data, um, really large-scale clinical record studies to try to understand all these risk factors and better support the, the molecular mechanisms as well. What can be done, can anything be done when it gets into the lungs and it starts to form this gel, this um, gel that you, you talked about? Can you do anything to reverse that process? Is there any way to clear the lungs of that? We're, we're looking at exactly that. So with some of these drugs, we can hopefully break the Brady Canyon storm um, to stop fluids from flowing in. There are drugs that can inhibit the production of hyaluronic acid. And we're looking into a few different ways of trying to clear the hyaluronic acid once it's formed. That, that's a tougher problem. We have some, some thoughts and hypotheses on that, but they need a lot more work. But if, if we can simply shut down the production and, and stop the inflow of, of water, that's a big first step to, to break the cycle. To me, as I'm reading this and I'm thinking you've, you've unraveled, it, sound, it looks like an incredibly important piece of huge piece of information, like you said, your eureka moment into how the uh, COVID-19 works. With that knowledge, I know you said you're looking at some pharmaceuticals that are already on the market, but does it indicate that people, even people who might have just been exposed should be treated immediately as opposed to, you know, right now we're telling people stay at home, Hole up in your house, don't go anywhere, and ride it out unless it gets so bad that you have to go, you know, to the hospital. Because at that point, you're going to the hospital because you can't breathe. Those are all good questions that that we want to be testing in clinical trials. And so um, some of the trials we're thinking about and talking to partners about would be outpatient trials and some would be inpatient trials. So how do you deal with patients who are already severely ill and are hospitalized? And how do you deal with, with folks who are pre that stage of hospitalization? And that's exactly what the, we want a set of trials that will test those sorts of questions. How early can you intervene? What's the right timing? And what's the right combination of these different drugs that will be used? Should they be used at different doses at different stages? There's, there's a ton of questions to ask. The joy of science is for every answer, you raise 10 more questions. <laughs> But those are the next steps, and we're we're really excited that already the, some of the preliminary small clinical work is showing showing efficacy. Um, so we're really keen to, to scale this up and start asking all these other questions in larger populations. The other interesting thing, there was a line in your report that you said you think you know why women might have a lower mortality rate. So, yeah, there's um, one of the genes involved in this system is on the X chromosome. Um, and so women have two, two copies of, of the X chromosome and men only one. Normally, that would make a huge difference in many genes on, 
on the X chromosome are what's called X silenced. So only one copy of them will, will be expressing. This specific gene has been shown to be able to escape X silencing. So there are two copies, one on each X chromosome that are that are expressing. So you have a higher dose of this gene in women, and we could actually show that in the COVID-19 patients. The women in the study um, had almost twice as much as, as, as the men, so that holds holds pretty tightly with the hypothesis. It's still down-regulated in, in women, but less so than it is in men. So that may be one of the, the factors that's at play here. I'm sure that's a complex phenomenon. There are going to be other things involved, but but this is one explanation of, of the differences. Just a few months ago, we were talking about the cytokine storm, and researchers thought that that might be behind this wide range of symptoms of, of COVID. Do you think that's still playing a part, or were we just kind of going down the wrong path there as we learn about how this disease, how this virus infects people? I mean, cytokines are certainly involved in the immune response. In fact, there's direct connections between the effects of bradykinin and specific cytokines in the downstream pathways. But there's been several papers coming out recently that, that have been downplaying the, the cytokine storm. They're involved, but it's not the absolute storm, the out-of-control blitzkrieg of, of cytokines that was predicted in that initial model. We looked hard in our data for evidence for a storm, and, and sure, we see some cytokines involved, but we didn't see a storm phenomenon like you would see in other diseases. And that's where this came from, is in, in, other, in other infectious diseases, there, there are cytokine storms where the cytokines really go haywire and out of control. And so people were projecting that that might be the case here. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been several papers out recently that sure show some involvement, but it's not. It's not the typical cytokine storm that's been seen in other diseases, and our our data bears that out. It's it certainly involves, but it's it's not stormy in the sense. So you've lined. <clears throat> we've already talked about what needs to happen next. You've talked about the different studies you guys are looking at, and that you need to look into more of the pharmaceuticals that are already out there. Um, what's it like being you right now? I can't imagine the pressure that you must feel at this moment, trying to unravel this virus as it you know, in the middle of a pandemic? Well, we, we sort of jumped into this area with, with both feet, and we saw pretty early on that this was this was likely to be a, a, a really large issue. And so we ramped up and sort of turned a good chunk of our attention to, to COVID-19 to try to figure it out. Our goal here is, is to help people. We want to push the bar forward, and if, if this leads to better outcomes for people, then you know, that, that would be fantastic. That, that's why we're doing this. We want to understand both what's going on the, on the virus side and the molecular evolution of the virus side and, and what's happening on the human reaction to it. So we have a whole series of papers coming out on the molecular evolution of the virus and the, and the implications of that on pathogenicity, virility, and virulence, and another whole series of papers of what's happening in, on the human reaction to it. Um, the Brady Cannon storm side, what's happening in the immune system, what's happening um, with, the, with the coagulopathy going on, and then how all of that is conditional on environment, which is another really exciting study. So we jumped in to really tackle this from every angle we could think of. And we're fortunate in a national lab. I, I have a, a, a fantastic team of postdocs and students and staff members 
where we studied lots of different, very complex biological systems, ranging from bioenergy, plants and microbiomes, all the way over through neuroscience, neuropsychological conditions, cardiovascular disease, cancer, etc. Because we, with the use of supercomputing and a lot of algorithms we've developed as new ways to look at the entire system, once we're able to do that in one system, we can, the algorithms are species agnostic. We can sort of turn our sights in something and say, okay, let's tackle a different problem. And so we've been able to use a lot of that infrastructure and knowledge of how to tackle complex problems and programs and algorithms we have up and, up and running in supercomputing space to focus on COVID-19 and say, how can we figure this out? So it's it comes under the category of really tragic opportunities. We, we like to be able to have an impact. And if, if we can help people, we're, we're super happy about that. So that's what we're trying to do. Everybody's scrambling to come to an understanding of what this virus is, how it works, and how to treat it. If, if we move that, yeah. that goal forward just a little bit, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. This is, I mean, it's amazing to see how much of the scientific community has, has mobilized to, to take this on. But it's something that's literally affecting everybody. Um, globally, I don't think there's anybody who's not affected by this somehow. Yeah. So you know, motivation levels are pretty high. Thank you, Dr. Jacobson, one for the work you do. And thank you for joining us today on In-Depth. We appreciate it. Um, thank you for taking the time. I'm really happy to be here. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.